Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. you to take your Bible this morning and join me in the book of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It's been my habit for a number of years now in the fall convocation to bring a biblical exposition but wed that exposition to the life of a great missionary. So this morning I want to speak to you on Bertha Smith, a soul-winning missionary and woman of prayer, revival, and the victorious Christian life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which was one of her as well as my life verses. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Olive Bertha Smith could be called the unknown or forgotten successor of Lottie Moon. In fact, I asked my class this morning at 8 o'clock how many of them had ever heard of Bertha Smith and only a couple of hands went up. Lottie Moon left China by death on December the 24th, 1912. And on July the 3rd, 1917, about five years later, the IMB, then the Foreign Mission Board, appointed Bertha Smith also as a missionary to China. Lottie Moon had served the Lord there faithfully for almost 40 years. Bertha Smith would serve both in China and later Formosa, now called Taiwan, like Lottie, as a single woman for 42 years. She would leave the mission field at the age of 70 only because she had to due to mandatory retirement, and she would actually serve the Lord until she died just short of her 100th birthday. She was a very simple and straightforward woman born and raised near Cal Pins, what a name, South Carolina. If you head down uh, Interstate uh, 20 toward uh, Atlanta, uh, you will, uh, actually it's 85, you will go past Cal Pins uh, not too far from the interstate there. Uh, She was born, interestingly, the same year that Lottie Moon made her first request for funds that would eventually lead to what we now call the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Lewis Drummond, who taught uh, evangelism and was president of Southeastern Seminary for a number of years, refers to her as a woman of revival. And she was part of what is known as the famous Shantung Revival that took place in the northern province of China in the 1920s. As Dr. Drummond says, she was right at the center of this exciting movement. I agree with him, and I cannot help but be shamed when I study her life because not only was she a woman of great prayer, uh, she was really a soul-winning machine. And one of the things you're going to hear again and again this year is, yes, we are passionate about the Great Commission, but how can you really be passionate about the Great Commission if you're not also passionate about personal evangelism and personal soul winning? I will say to you this morning without any hesitation, would to God 
that the tribe of Bertha Smith would increase 10,000-fold here and around the world. As I was reflecting upon her life, it became very clear to me that her life was exemplified beautifully by the truth of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, which was one of her life verses. Or Colossians 1.27, which speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or maybe even Philippians 1.21, another of my life verses, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Interestingly, when I did my research, I discovered that in her book, How the Spirit Filled My Life, she brought all three of these verses together as testimony to that which laid the foundation for her life as a Christian and her life as a missionary. Listen to what she wrote. God's provision for holy living is Christ enthroned. The holy life is not our living. It is Christ so freely dwelling in us that he actually can live his life through our personality. We rejoice over Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in every believer, but that does not mean that all believers are living holy lives. Many are defeated. Why? Because the Christ in us does not force himself over our wills to do anything for us. He waits for us to will that he shall control us. Holy living presupposes death to self are constantly choosing that position. Living in that position is necessary for holy living. We are never holy if we rebel against holy God. When we permit the old self to rise up and express itself or even want to, we grieve the one who wants to live his holiness out in and through us. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life shall appear. Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ. It is Christ enthroned in the heart and life. Since he lived thus in Paul, he also can live enthroned in you and me and enable us to say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. What kind of life does Christ live in us? A life that is victorious, that is always at peace and rest. That is equal to any situation which man or the devil and his demons may create. That is what he wants to do for us. When experiencing the wars of North China, I learned to pray in every situation. Now, Lord, you are equal to this, and he always was. You may say, this is not natural. Whoever thought that the Christian life is natural? The Christian life is supernatural. It is God's life in us. And so for our purposes this morning, I want to take uh, Galatians 2.20 and unwrap it in four movements. And I want to allow uh, Bertha Smith, her life uh, and her writings, to kind of be our commentary and our illustrations along the way. Because, again, what an example she was of a devoted follower of Jesus. It would be well for us to learn from this great godly missionary. Number one, we must live the crucified life. Bertha Smith believed, and I quote, The love of Calvary could not be appreciated until the people had heard the thunder of Sinai. And that particular statement captures well what you read and the context of Galatians 2.20. Paul wants the Galatians to know that law righteousness, that works righteousness, justifies no one. Look back at verse 16 where he says, We know 
that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And therefore, as verse 19 declares, I died to the law. Why? So that I might live to God. So there is the context of verse 20, a verse that the wonderful New Testament scholar Leon Morris said was personally the most moving text in the whole of Scripture. I have been crucified with Christ, united with God by faith. I now share in his death. He died to sin. I died to sin with him. He died to self on my behalf. And now I die to self on his behalf. Now, it's very important that we understand Galatians 2.20 because it is a verse that has been subjected to some misunderstanding. First of all, there is certainly an objective import to this verse. But I would also argue that there is a subjective aspect to the verse as well. Let me unwrap it theologically. Objectively, this verse does look to my justification. But subjectively, it also looks to my sanctification. So both of these theological ideas are embedded, I believe, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Tim Keller says it this way in terms of the objective meaning. God treats me just as if I died on the cross and paid for every last sin. I am not liable. So the law has no claim on me. I owe the law nothing. I have paid it in full. Subjectively, though, there is a dying that takes place at conversion. And yes, there is also a dying daily that I grasp day by day as I understand the magnitude of my union with Christ and my identification with my Savior. Again, I love the way John Piper says it. He puts it so well. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? I think it means this. First, that the gruesome death of the all-glorious, innocent, loving Son of God for my sin is the most radical indictment of my hopeless condition imaginable. The crucifixion of Jesus is the open display of my hellish nature. And second, when I see this and believe that He really died for me, then my old, proud self, which loves to display its power by climbing ladders of morality and intellect and beauty and daring dies. Self-reliance and self-confidence cannot live at the foot of the cross. Therefore, when Christ died, I died. Bertha Smith died with Jesus at the age of 16, though her struggle actually began all the way back at the age of 10. But on September the 5th, 1905, that was a long time ago, hear what she says in her own words. I quote, For the first time I saw that we come to the cross of Christ to be saved. I learned that what the preachers meant by trusting God to save meant to trust God the Son who settled my sin and my sinful self when He took my sins and me in His own body on the tree. Responding then to a public invitation, she says, I was on the front row. Having gone forward at the first verse, I knew that I would go. 
There was no use to wait. It was but a step to where the pastor stood. I took it, gave him my hand to signify that I trusted in Christ's death to save me. By the time I took the second step, which was back to my seat, my years of burden of sin had rolled away and the joy of the Lord filled my soul. Bertha Smith so lived a crucified life as a Christian. Many examples could be given, but I'll just pick out one for our purposes this morning. Her decision never to marry. She decided that she would serve the Lord as a single missionary and she would serve alone. And in fact, many times she found herself alone on the mission field with no fellow missionaries even to be around her. In her autobiography, following a brief section entitled Loneliness, Matthew 28:20, 20, she follows with a section entitled My Covenant, and listen to the very moving words that she wrote. I had been convinced that it was not the Lord's will for me to marry. Up until my second year in China, I had thought that I would be content to live single. How little did I realize what I was saying when I sang so sincerely, I surrender all. The Lord gave me a mother heart, the depth of which I had not fathomed until I saw the difference in the life of a single woman and those who were living with the one whom they had chosen for a partner and their own precious children. The married missionaries were in the will of the Lord. Why could not such a life be the Lord's will for me? But these questions were answered for me in a very real and transforming experience with the Lord. I had been in China less than two years when my father passed away in the influenza epidemic of 1918. It was necessary for me to go to Chifu, to the nearest U.S. consulate, to sign legal papers. This meant eight days of travel there and back. I passed through one mission station going and another returning and stayed in the home of missionaries while in Chifu. By the time I had started on the last stage of the journey back to Lao Chao Fu, I had seen seven happy families with their children. After leaving the last mission home before reaching my station, I traveled for two days along a lonely road. Realizing what I was going back to and that this was my life, I wept most of the first day. By the next day, I knew that something had to be done. Calling upon a nearby peak to be my witness, I made a covenant with the Lord. Lord, I want to enter into an agreement with you today. You called me to China, and you gave me grace to follow in coming. I am here to win souls for you. The only thing that will take the place of my own children will be spiritual children. If you will take from my heart this pain, I will be willing to go through with just as much inconvenience, self-denial, and pain to see children born into the family of God as is necessary for a mother to endure for children to be born in the flesh. In desperation, I called upon the mighty God for help in facing the difficulties and accepting the compensations of His service, and I was not disappointed. From that moment forward, there were no more tears, for the Lord met my every heart need. I became content with my lot and began to study the Bible and books on soul winning with a new interest. Prayer became more definite for individuals, and every opportunity to speak for the Lord was seized. 
The transaction had lasted until this day. And many, many times I have praised the Lord for the privilege of being a single woman with the other person's soul need having first place in my heart. Yes, we see in Bertha Smith an example of the one who lives the crucified life. Number two, we must also live by Christ living in us. You see, salvation results not only in our identifying with Christ in His death and crucifixion. It also involves us identifying Him with, uh, identifying with Him in His life and also His resurrection. Tom Schreiner says it this way, union with Christ in His death spells the beginning of new life for believers. Believers are now, I love this, believers are now a new self. So Paul's point is simply this, the old self, the old man was crucified and it is no longer that I who lives, but I am alive. But there is now a new me. It is Christ who is the animating, energizing person who lives in me. Indeed, it is right. Colossians 1.27, Christ is in me, the hope of glory. And so Paul says from this verse, we are to no longer think of ourselves as having any kind of separate existence from Christ. Christ has become the source. Christ is now the aim. He is the motivating principle of all that we are and all that we do. And Bertha Smith grasped this truth, I believe, as well as anyone I've ever read. And, of course, she became known as one who emphasized what was at one time very popular, maybe we need to regain it, and that is the victorious Christian life. Now, let's be theological for a moment. I'm very much aware of the fact, as are others, that some have taken that idea and run amok into perfectionism. But Bertha Smith was so anchored in Scripture, I believe you find in her the balance we all should seek to achieve. In fact, she said in commenting on the all-sufficient Christ who is wanting to live his life in us all the time. I love this. While we are weak, he wanted to be strength in us. While we were stupid, he wanted to be wisdom in us. While we were sinful, he wanted to be holiness in us. While we were easily aroused and intolerant, he wanted to be patient in us. He wanted us to die to self and let Him be our humility. She found this insight extremely valuable when serving in China, especially when she would endure opposition, persecution, and ridicule, both from the Japanese invaders and later what she called the Red Army or the communism that began to sweep over China. In fact, she said on one occasion, quote, the Red influence in the army at that time led the soldiers to ridicule churches and persecute Christians. In a city in Henan, in a street parade, an old beggar man in rags was labeled God the Father, a donkey was labeled Jesus, and an ox was called the Holy Spirit. And yet she stood steadfast with grace and conviction and mercy and kindness. And by Christ living in us, she said we would learn more and more and more to reflect His character and His likeness in any and every situation. 
You read her writings and her autobiography and you find out she was a very earthy woman, uh, a very down-home, folksy kind of lady. And by the way, this is not in the manuscript, which will be posted later today. I'm not going to have time to go through everything I put together. It's a 30-something page manuscript, but uh, you can go later and read the whole thing. But let me just say this to you that uh, uh, would be able to appreciate this historically. One of the presidents of the conservative resurgence was a man named Charles Stanley, First Baptist Church of Atlanta. He was elected in 1985 in Dallas at the largest convention of Protestants ever gathered in the history of the world, 45,000. He was not going to run. He had chosen to withdraw and not go ahead, and he received a phone call from Bertha Smith, who, if I can just be blunt, chewed his tail out for being a wimp and a coward. And I can tell you, having been around them on a few occasions, Charles Stanley held Bertha Smith in the highest regard, as did Adrian Rogers, as did many of the great leaders of our convention, and as a result of that sweet old lady taking him to the spiritual woodshed, he would run and he would win the most pivotal election, really, in the history of the conservative resurgence. But she was very down-to-earth, very folksy. And so she said this one time about us imitating Christ. Children are supposed to favor their parents. Parents are happy for their children to look like them. Through the years, when I came home on furloughs, the neighbors who came to greet me invariably said, to my great delight, the older Bertha gets, the more she favors her mother. When I looked around at my beautiful mother to see how she was responding to the thought of her ugly daughter looking like her, I saw the biggest smile on her face. Then she says, do people think of Jesus when they see you? Are you holy enough to favor him? We must live the crucified life. We must live by Christ living in us. Number three. We must live a life of faith in Jesus. Jesus does not say, change your life and then come to me. Jesus says, come to me and I will change your life. He says, come to me by faith and live for me by faith. You see, don't forget this. It is the good news of the gospel from beginning, in the middle, and all the way to the end. We're justified by the gospel. We are sanctified by the gospel. We will ultimately be glorified by the gospel. And Paul says, the new resurrected me who has Christ living in me continues to live, but how? By faith in the one who is nothing less than the Son of God, deity made flesh. It was indeed this kind of faith in the resurrected Christ that sparked what has now become known as the famous Shandong Revival, which broke out in northern China in 1927. I pointed out to my class this morning that when Bertha Smith left China, there were approximately 5 million believers. At her death, there were more than 50 million believers. And many, many historians of China will credit that explosion of Christianity over the next 30 years to this great Shantung revival. Bertha Smith was right in the middle of it. In fact, Louis Drummond, Louis Drummond says, and I quote, Revival began to permeate the work of the missionaries, although it would be three or four years before the full impact of the awakening would be generally experienced. 
It spread first among Chinese preachers and Bible-teaching women in the mission schools who are open to seeing themselves in the light of the holiness of God. He continues, Miss Bertha herself said that everyone became an evangelist of some sort, all desired to share the gospel. Many uneducated farmers became preachers during the cold winter months. When it was impossible for them to work the ground, they would travel by twos to preach Christ throughout the area. So many people professed salvation in Christ that Dr. Glass, who followed Dr. Culpepper as president of the seminary, and Pastor Kwan, president of the North China Baptist Convention, felt constrained to tour a number of villages to help the numerous converts. Glass and Kwan were often kept up all night just reading the Word of God to the many new believers. Such was the Spirit among those born again. Now, I'm going to skip over for time's sake, but I would also I would want to point out to you that one of our former students, Wes Handy, wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on the Shantung, Shandong Revival, and you can go there and read it in the manuscript that you'll see later. I have one, two, three, four, uh, about five, six, uh, seven pages that deal with this particular event. Let me just conclude, as is any case, uh, when God moves in this kind of mighty way, there will be excesses. And needless to say, back home, where we're not really uh, used to or expect supernatural activities, uh, there was skepticism among those who led the Foreign Mission Board. And so I quote uh, from Wes Handy's dissertation, just a short section. In 1935, the executive secretary of the Foreign Mission Board, Charles E. Mandry, visited the North China Mission and came back with glowing reports. His main, points, his main points defended the validity of the work by the missionaries. First, a good foundation for Christ's church has been laid. Second, our missionaries who are building on this foundation today are worthy, devoted, and sacrificial. Third, the superstructure they are building is glorious. Fourth, the material for present and future building is superior and unlimited. He directly defended the North China Mission when he said that in the great revival that has swept throughout North and interior China, there have been some excesses and hysteria, but it is rapidly passing today. Our missionaries have their feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and they're building gloriously on the foundation laid so deep and strong by those heroes and martyrs who preceded them. He then concludes... A glorious revival is sweeping northern and interior China, such as we have not seen in America in a hundred years. We have seen it and felt its power. It is a revival of fire and burning. Sin is being burned out of broken lives, and men and women are being absolutely made over. The power of Christ has come to grips with the power of Satan, and it is a fearful conflict. Satan has held sway and dominion over China for unnumbered and weary centuries. His kingdom is suddenly being challenged and broken by the power of a risen and enthroned Christ. And I cannot help but believe that our God wants to do that again in places like China and in places like Afghanistan, and even in places like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran. But He will do it through people that are broken, humble, 
spirit-led, spirit-filled servants. People like Bertha Smith. Number four, we must live in the reality of the atoning love of the Son of God. Living by faith will take you out of your comfort zone. But realizing the love that Christ has for you will make it all worthwhile. The Son of God, the text says, loved me and gave himself for me. Now, hear me. Paul does not deny, of course, that Jesus loves us today, for he certainly does. He is simply looking back in this particular context at Calvary and what was accomplished at the cross. Again, John Piper says it like this, Paul was utterly mastered, held captive by one great scene in history, a cross on Golgotha, and on it, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. I did not know who was receiving the uh, award today until uh, yesterday. But already in this manuscript that I had prepared some weeks ago, I have this quote from Dr. Morita's commentary, Christ-Centered Exposition. He writes, Are you utterly mastered by this truth? To trust in Christ alone is to be united with Christ and experience an altogether new life, new affections, peace with God, no condemnation, hope, joy, stability, and assurance. You know you are loved. He is jealous for you. Do not miss Paul's use of the past tense here. It is not that Christ loves us, but that he loved us. You see, the cross is the proof of God's love. His affections for you have been put on full display at the cross Do not put your head on your pillow without feeling the love of Christ for you. This was the reality that Paul lived by. I say it to myself this way. The Son of God loved me, although in the commentary he puts his name. Uh, He does love Tony, but he loves me too, and he loves you. So we just use the word me here, okay? I I changed his manuscript just a little bit, made it a little bit better. So anyway, uh, (laughs) just kidding, bro. I, I, I say to myself this way. The Son of God loved me. The Son of God gave Himself for me. I want you to know the specific, personal, particular love of Christ for you. We fail to lack assurance of Christ's love because we fail to reflect on the cross like this. Bertha Smith was utterly mastered by the cross. She never doubted for a moment the specific, personal, particular, peculiar love that Christ had not only for her, but also for the millions of the Chinese she longed to see saved. And that's why she was a 24-7 walking, talking, breathing, soul-winning machine, the likes of which we seldom ever see. I'll just give a couple of examples honoring our time. Day after day, I went to the bus terminal, stood at a loading stop, and took out a track in Chinese and started reading it. The long line of waiting passengers would look amazed and one would ask, do you know what you are reading? When I answered, yes. Would you like to know? He would reach for a track and then the whole line would follow suit. When that bus loaded, I moved to the next uh, outgoing one. Often I had a chance for enough conver- a conversation to secure a card with an address or, now like this, I repeated in my mind the name and the address given me until the person had turned away and I could record it in my notebook. Listen to this one. I put my name in both English and Chinese on the bamboo fence. Miss Smith, Baptist missionary. People began to come. 
In addition to the Sunday services, we had Bible classes Tuesday and Thursday evenings. People came for help until I never had, never have need to leave my home to put in a day's work for the Lord. And this is so sweet. My sofa was literally ruined by the tears of repentance shed on it. But to me, it was only beautifully brocade. She went through war. She, many times where she lived, had bombs exploding around her and bullets whizzing through her room. She said, I've been in China for 25 years and during that time had learned when anything new and unexpected came up, get on my knees, turn it over to the Lord just as soon as possible. The problem then becomes His responsibility. And I was saved from worrying about it. I close. Bertha Smith died on June 12, 1988 at the age of 99, just a few weeks shy of her 100th birthday. Right up until the time of her death, she continued to care and pray for what she called her children in China. In fact, even after her forced retirement, which she accepted, by the way. In fact, she, she said with, with great insight uh, and wisdom, uh, I felt that I was just then qualified from experience for missionary work. The 41 and a half years had been very short. Interesting indeed, at times thrilling, but always rewarding. Every trial along the way had been forgotten as soon as the next person was saved. However, I agreed with the Foreign Mission Board that its retirement policy was good. Since the mind that we know with grows old, too, some of us would never be willing to retire were it left to our discretion. It's a very powerful and important word for those of us moving into the last quarter of our life. When she retired from mission service, as I mentioned earlier, 5,000, 5 million believers in China at her death, it was estimated that there were more than 50. Her cousin Pamela Reed said she was truly an angel of light, and on her tombstone there in Cowpens, you will find the inscription of Proverbs 3, 6, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Two of my heroes, Adrian Rogers says, I'm a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. I like that. And missionary Jim Elliott, who saw his life taken at the age of 29, said, Missionaries are very human folks, just doing what they are asked, simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. As she was about to leave America to head for China in 1917 at the age of 29, Bertha Smith wrote in a letter these words, My heart rejoices that I am on the way to China. I feel unworthy of the privilege of going, but I am trusting that God shall use me to do a great work for Him there. And that He certainly did. May it be as I said at the beginning, God would take the life of Bertha Smith and so move us and inspire us to see one who so loved and served Christ faithfully that her tribe amongst us and beyond would be multiplied 10,000 times over. What a great harvest of souls we would see if our Lord were to do that. 
Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.